and welcome to Cool Story Guys. I'm Jeff. I'm Ethan. And despite being purveyors of fantasy, we are still very much living in the world of reality in 2021, Ethan. Berlin instituted a curfew last weekend. We have no idea when we're getting vaccines. How's your morale holding up these days? To be quite honest with you, it's quite low. (laughs) I think the weather's kind of playing tricks on us right now. You know, Germany's known for being a little bit kind of coy with with the transition from winter to spring that tends to last at least three months um no i'm kind of banging my head against the wall to be quite honest with you i'm not ready to join the afd uh, in protesting against everything that's been instituted yeah it's crazy i'm losing my mind (laughs) so fantasy is supposed to be an escape yeah and you know it's a little vacation away from reality and we've been giving people a pretty bleak travel destination with our story. <laughs> the story has, I mean, to be quite honest with you, the story hasn't really helped too much. <laughs> and it should have. I thought we, we kind of came into this feeling pretty excited. And, um, and it's been very devastating last four chapters. So do you, do you think that reality is bleeding over into our fantasy or, uh, or is this what we would have, what we would have created if things weren't so bleak in the uh, real world? Oh boy. I don't think that we we're very positive guys i don't think any of our writing is kind you of don't think that, that we're very positive guys no i think that we're very positive <laughs> guys and i don't think our, our writing yeah I, I i don't know it must it must be because we are a lot i mean we're positive guys we don't create like really horrible stories all the time and i i think definitely yeah there's there's an edge to that because you know i think the thing about fantasy is you kind of pull from the world a little bit and when you go out into the sunshine and you see your friends and people are cheers and beers you're thinking ah friendly dwarves and elves and that sort of thing but in this kind of situation all i see is ghostly figures and, and banshees screaming in the night i'm like oh i'm depressed so yeah yeah definitely i just finished a book called outline by rachel cusk and it's not a fantasy book but it's it's about a british writer who goes to greece and i I'm dying to go back to Greece. I love Greece. Yeah. And reading it was like just not an escape for me. Like where normally you could, you know, get lost in somebody else's experience of having gone to this nice, warm, sunny place and doing sort of trivial things like going to a cafe and having lunch with a stranger. Yeah. And it just like pissed me off (laughs) that I couldn't do it. It was not an escape at all. I mean, do, do you get into that point where you can't even look at your Facebook pictures that you've posted just because it kind of makes you kind of bummed because like i i've i have all of these pictures and i was i said you know we have time to organize them and to make photo albums and i started to do it and i was just like oh this feels bad so i stopped (laughs) yeah i think that both of us are in need of like a hard reset yeah i mean it's been seven months since i left my neighborhood for more than a day yeah so uh so let's talk about escape what is your ideal fantasy escape if you were going to transport yourself away to a fantastic reality, what would it be like? Oh boy. Okay, so I'm going to have to use an example. Oh yeah, you can use you can use examples from video games or movies or I believe it would be Pelican Island from Stardew Valley. Stardew Valley is is a is a farming sim and it has this very lovely, friendly world with all that you could want from a tiny little island. You've got your beach, you've got your forest, you've got your creepy caves, which is kind of a, a funny addition. But your whole goal in this game is to farm, make money, and befriend people by giving them gifts. That, that's all. That's what you do. You know, you, you, you make things and you give them to the, the, the townsfolk as gifts. And it's just so nice and quaint 
and it's kind of the kind of place I would want to retire at some point in the future. And there's really no, I mean, you know, there is some combat and some scariness in the caves, but you can avoid that altogether if you want to. You could you could farm one particular type of produce if you wanted to, but it's just so nice and the soundtrack is so good and yeah, I that that would be it. That would be the place I would go because everything else is kind of. I'd say like Skyrim because it's pretty, but it's full of it's dragons full of and giants. Yeah, I was I was curious <laughs> if you were going to pick a place that still had conflict. Yeah, or if it was going to be something that was just yeah utopia. Yeah, it, it has to be utopia. No, no conflict for me. But what about you? Sure, uh, mine is actually something similar. I think it would be a deserted island like Swiss Family Robinson style. Oh, where you know it's like you and some close loved ones or friends, a couple of dogs, <laughs> and you just get to live on nature and survive and be free of humanity. Yeah. Which also is, you know, and your game was was fairly close. I didn't play Sturdy Valley, but this time last year, my wife and I were totally obsessed with Animal Crossing. Yeah. Which sounds like is basically exactly the same game. Yeah, exactly. Where you're on an island and you you can sort of pick fruit and make friends and live in harmony with the the world of your tiny island you kind of function like people did back when people used to be happy Mm -hmm. (laughs) when farming was your way of life and stuff so i'm afraid to go back to my island i i I played that game super hard and then i i just stopped completely because it was like too big of a part of my life yeah our island was named chonky tonk (laughs) and i had to i was going to chonky tonk every day and just wasting hours of my life and i was like no i gotta i gotta go back to reality and uh, then I, yeah, I was afraid to go back to but my what, island utopia. What could be there waiting for you? I mean, it, you know, is it overgrown weeds you're worried about or like, I think something? you get, I think you get cockroaches. No, it was, oh. uh, <laughs> no, it was, it was not about what I was afraid of. It was that I, I had like gone too deep into the gotcha. fantasy. Yeah. The escape, the escape had sort of overtaken my reality. Yeah. And as much as reality sucks, but I have to live in it. Yeah. So yeah. that was me coming to grips. Yeah. No, I 100% understand that. Shall we talk about the book? We should. Okay. I wrote a chapter. You did. It was different. It was a departure. <laughs> I did a different thing. So let's talk about it. Yep. In chapter five, we open up in a bar somewhere up north. There's a blizzard raging outside with people drinking away morosely in a rustic wooden lodge. A stranger enters and catches the eye of one of the regulars. Through their conversation, we learn that we're now set four years from the events of the first chapters of the book. The people of the world have coined a name for the disappearance of the oceans and the transformation of the islands into columns. The Shift. The man at the bar hasn't received news of the outside world in several years. The stranger, a former ISO officer named Finnegan, offers to fill him in, in exchange for some information of his own. Finnegan is looking for someone to take him out to meet the Arapa, but no one seems interested in entertaining his request. No matter what he offers them, they say that it's just not possible. So Finnegan moves on to another issue. He's looking for a girl around 16 years old that he's pretty sure has come through these parts. This inquest touches a nerve. The bar gets quiet and the people get sour. Eventually, one of the locals named Anji agrees to tell his story. Lorena Danvers came through a month before looking for a guide to the Arapa as well, but didn't have anything to trade to pay for the journey. When she returned a short time later, her strange blue squid-like companion was dragging a charred Ursua king through the snow. When pressed about how she and her pet killed a creature taller than a two-story building, Lorena gets mad, and her beast begins to grow in size. She tells the people it's not her pet, it's her enforcer, and it's got a name, Morwell. One of the other local men, named Yura, was the one who took her out to the Arapa, but he's face down on the bar, mumbling. 
Finnegan starts to converse with the man and convinces him to tell his tale in exchange for his last packet of coffee. This is a treasure now that the shift has destroyed all the islands where coffee grew. People haven't tasted it in years. Yura agrees, but he wants to know why Finnegan is so curious about this girl. We learn Lorena Danvers has been traveling the world, seeking and eliminating the touched. Somehow, she's amassed enough power to actually be able to take these powerful beings out, and it poses a real threat to what remains of the world. Since the shift, people have learned exactly how important the touched are to shielding the world from the shift's effects. They can create barriers that keep the waters drawn in, and prevent the islands from transforming into columns. They're the most important resource the world has for survival, and Lorena Danvers is screwing that all up. Yura had no idea that Lorena was so powerful, or such a problem. He agreed to take her out to the Arapa because she had Arapa snowshoes, and spoke of Calix and Thorsten Brandt, who the people of the northern plateaus remembered fondly. He was terrified taking her and her beast out on his sled for three days to the Arapa rendezvous point, but he never thought the tribe would actually show up to meet them. But they did, and invited both Lorena and Yura back to their village. Lorena wanted to train with them, as Calix's father had, and learned to harness the great power inside of herself. But she was shocked when she met with the Arapa shaman and found that the man had crimson skin, and it wasn't long before she erupted into a rage and Morwell sprang to life. The fire beast grew and burst from its blue magical containment field, destroying the village, with Lorena choreographing its movements. As she did, a dark orb hovered around her. Yura ran, and when he was far away, an explosion that came from the village knocked him to his feet. The bar patrons are curious how Finnegan knows so much about the touched, and asks to hear how he first encountered them. Finnegan is hesitant to tell his story, but begrudgingly agrees. We hear a shortened version of what transpired in Chapter 5 from his point of view. His scouting ship was on the way to see what was happening on Koa when they picked up what they thought was a touched walking across the sand. It turned out to be one of the skin suit creatures, which kills his crew and causes his ship to crash. Only Finnegan survives, making his way running the rest of the way to Koa by wearing the creature's skin wrapped around his feet. Finnegan fights alongside the Koans and many are killed. Their chieftain believes that everything that's happening on the island is the fault of the Crimson Woman, and when she appears, battered and with powers malfunctioning, Finnegan kills her on the chieftain's behest, thinking he's doing the right thing. He knows now that it was the worst decision he could have made. As another ISO ship comes to rescue him a few days later, he's stopped by the sensation of pure light entering his body, speaking to him in visions. It tells him that Koa is lost, but that he must return the Crimson Woman's body to another orb chamber to repent for what he's done. The chapter ends with a rare glimpse of hope in this story. Finnegan successfully returned the body to an orb, but he has no idea what effect it had on the Crimson Woman. Though Lorena fought and may have killed the Arapa Shaman, and the barrier around the northern plateaus has fallen, their land has not been corrupted by the purple smoke and craters. Finnegan promises to do everything he can to help keep their land safe, and takes off to continue hunting the dangerous fugitive Lorena Danvers. So I guess my first question is, how did it feel to write a somewhat more upbeat chapter? <laughs> it felt like there was naturally a reset. Yeah. Like I said, you and I need a reset after being stuck in Berlin for so long. Having the book go the way it had gone and getting all those death rolls in a row, it seemed the natural place for a reset. Yeah. And creating something with a glimmer of hope was kind of my intention from the start. Yeah. I wanted to progress the story and solidify where things were going, but I also wanted to have something positive happen for once in the story. And it felt good. Yeah. It felt good to write a theme song for the end that wasn't just a total bummer. I'll say that. <laughs> 
So let's talk about the rules. Yep. I rolled a 14, which was protagonist discovers great power. Yeah, that's a nice one. And you rolled an 18. Yeah. Which was a big one. Which was um, protagonist becomes the antagonist. Yes. And because Lorena is essentially the only protagonist left, both of those roles sort of fell to her. Yeah. So we were giving her power and then turning her into the bad guy. Yeah. Which at first I was like, really? Yeah. I got to make I got to make this little kid the bad guy now. Uh but the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. Yeah. Cuz we had we had sort of laid the tracks already in chapter 3 that she was sort of being deceived by the orb or by something into thinking that the death of her friends was not exactly what it was. Yeah. So it was good that we left ourselves that opening because then it was a little more believable that Lurina could be corrupted yeah. and could kind of harness this evil power that was in the orb or was in her companion. It is yet to be di- discovered exactly what power Lurina has discovered, but she has, she, she can control a giant fire beast yeah. now. <laughs> it is great power. You did really awesome with it, actually. Like, it was really, really cool how it developed, and that hard reset was definitely needed, and it definitely was accomplished in this chapter. But was there any inkling in your mind that Danvers was going to be the antagonist? Because we keep joking about it, and I was like, I wonder if he's going to just be funny and just twist this up and really have a super hard reset. Well, there were... Kind of the way that I go about it is I, I look at the sort of breadcrumbs that we've left for each other in the previous chapters. Mm-hmm. And if any of them naturally connect to yeah. the roles, then I try to go that way. Yeah. Because then it seems like we're doing things on purpose. Yeah. Instead of, you know, just following a funny joke like Danvers <laughs> is the bad guy. And Danvers may still be a bad guy. Yeah, we have no idea. But giving giving Danvers immense power and then making him a bad guy seemed like a particularly uh, ludicrous jump. <laughs> Especially when we had already given Lorena a backstory of, you know, we've, we had given her whole chapter was a tragic backstory yeah so it could have gone either way it could have propelled her into fighting on behalf of the ones she loved for good or seeking revenge which is the way that that panned out were you kind of relieved that the crimson woman died in the previous chapter so that she didn't become the antagonist i think that i probably still would have made lorena the antagonist okay i think that because of the way that that chapter panned out the backstory just made more sense for her to be full of anger yeah. and rage. Yeah. And it plays into this idea of corruption that I think is going to be central to the story moving forward, mm-hmm. where the orbs are being corrupted by something and that is turning them into the columns. And that's what happened in your chapter four. Mm-hmm. And Lorena is being corrupted by something. Mm-hmm. And so I think it it was a much easier path forward. And I, I wouldn't have done that with the Crimson Woman. I think she's always going to be a protagonist. Yep. But, you know, she died. Yep. And I gave us, in my chapter, a way to move forward with her in some way. And the opportunity to have other Crimson Women. There are more touched now. Mm-hmm. So I liked the idea of, like, depending on what happens with the roles, we can either move forward with her or not. Yeah. Or we can move we can introduce another touched. Yeah. We're playing with this concept of perception and that being a driving force in the actions of some of our characters. So in chapter four, the Crimson Woman is killed by the Coens because they believe that she caused the disaster. 
and Lorena's revenge is based on, from what we can tell from chapter three, a vision that she saw. We were talking about, you know, events bleeding into this story, but do you think this has anything to do with like the day-to-day kind of constant back and forth, you know, politically or in terms of COVID or this kind of thing? I mean, are you starting to feel that in the story? Because I think it's making an interesting conflict that I didn't see at the very beginning of the tale. I guess I hadn't really thought about it. I think that there's no way of divorcing the fact that this world is being torn apart and everything sucks. And it's pretty easy to look at the news and be like, our world is being torn apart and everything sucks. (laughs) Uh, We definitely did not create a utopia. We created some, we created a world that is being destroyed. Yeah. So I think that there's no question that those two, at least in my subconscious, were intertwined. But I think that's about as far as that went. Okay. Okay. We've gone from the desert to snow now. And I kind of thought it was a funny transition, again, with a hard reset. But for you, would you prefer desert or the snow to kind of live out your last days? Mm. I'm someone who is naturally warm. Yeah. I sweat just when I eat spicy food. (laughs) I'm like always walking around the house in a t-shirt and shorts. So I feel like the desert would destroy me. I can't handle hot climates. Yeah. And I do like snow, but I'm also someone who has spent his entire life in moderate climate. And Mm -hmm. so I like snow for like a week. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, okay, you can go. Yeah. So I don't, I don't get to choose like mountain. Is it okay? But you want like a San Francisco climate? Okay. (laughs) I'll take take snow, but there has to be mountains around and trees. It can't be, it can't be the Northern plateaus. The Northern plateaus are just snow desert. (laughs) So if it's hot sand desert or snow desert, I'll just die. Yeah. You just, you're not going to try to push through. No. No. Okay, so we met Finnegan in this chapter, or let, let me say we, we, we learn more about Finnegan in this chapter because he's actually um, from the previous chapter. What indications in him did you see him as a potential protagonist as opposed to what I was kind of pushing in the direction of as a, kind of a lawful, neutral to lawful evil type character? Well, I didn't want to just completely create another character. Mm-hmm. And like I said earlier about the breadcrumbs, you had given us this new character who, if he's an ISO, then he's at least, yeah, lawful something Mm -hmm. is his alignment. And kind of it was the, it was what you had him say when he killed the Crimson Woman, Mm -hmm. which was, I wish we didn't have to meet like this. Mm -hmm. And to me, that indicated that like he was an okay guy. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I, I liked the idea of introducing him by doing a heinous thing. If he's mm-hmm. the one that kills the protagonist, but he's really like, he was misguided. Mm-hmm. I like the th- sort of theme of people doing, doing things that they were misguided in their intention. Yeah. Uh, they think they're doing something that's good, but they're not. Yeah. And then they either keep doing it or they have to atone for it. I liked the idea of Finnegan continuing on and, and the, uh, the, the option of the hard jump, the mm-hmm. four-year time jump, sort of let him have already come to peace with what he did. Mm-hmm. And that, that seemed like a fun way to move the story forward. Mm-hmm. Okay. So speaking of the time jump, what prompted that outside of, I know we've been talking about a hard reset, but did you get to a point with that chapter? You said, I, I'm going to have to spend, you know, five paragraphs describing Lorena walking through the desert. Is that what kind of did it? Or did you immediately come to that conclusion? I thought that the prospect of watching Lorena transform into the antagonist was less 
enticing than her just being the antagonist. Mm-hmm. And and there was stuff that I wanted to have progress in the story that like with the columns where a time jump just seemed like it was the best way to sort of solidify exactly what is happening and move forward with the themes that I wanted to follow. Mm -hmm. Where there was less confusion about what was happening in the world, because in the first four chapters, just nobody knows what's going on. And I, I think that that's fine for a while, but then I wanted to have some something concrete to move forward on. Mm-hmm. And the time jump gave me an opportunity to say like, okay, this is what's happening. This is where the world is now. The people are dealing with it or not dealing with it. And we can use conversation about the world to give exposition instead of just dumping it on yeah. people. Okay. The time jump to me was very freeing, actually, because I was really worried about kind of the next steps as well. So when you when you did that, I was like, oh yeah, this not only makes sense, but it kind of opens things up so much more and we don't have to play, you know, coy with, you know, what's, you know, what's happening, what's creeping around here, what's the theory? Because I think up to this point, we've been kind of in the back of our minds trying to theorize what's actually happening. And now it, there's a jumping off point that we can work with. And, and that's, that's fun. That's a lot easier right now. But as a result of it, the world is kind of an, an apocalyptic state, which is um, also a cool challenge to deal with as well. So no, I, I thought that was a really good next step. Um, it really fit. Now, Koa's gone, as far as we are concerned. What happened to the Kalans on Koa? They either died or got off with Finnegan. I mean, I said that there was only like a dozen people left yeah. when he left. So I assume that they got relocated. Okay. You know, Cause or, ju- or killed. Most of them got killed. Okay. Because that kind of leads me to my next question is we're kind of running low on protagonists again at this point. And I really thought it was funny, the concept of bringing up some secondary characters <laughs> off the bench in case we needed them. So do you have any characters that have existed even in the slightest bit throughout the story that you think could potentially be brought up in case we get another round of really unfortunate roles? Well, we're not killing anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> so Finnegan is going to serve a big role moving mm-hmm. forward. Danvers still exists somewhere theoretically yeah. Danvers has not been technically killed yep so uh Danvers Danvers is still going to play a role and I think that you know either the Crimson Woman or just the idea of other touched yeah that's my bench okay is like having this sort of ability to know that there is a I struggle to call them a race because the touched are not a race. Mm -hmm. They're just a subgroup. Mm -hmm. But what happens in protecting and saving the world is going to come down to some sort of interplay between the touched and the aquine and whatever this being of light is that have these abilities to know more about the situation than the average person. Okay. Okay. Are you interested in a chapter from the perspective of Lorena? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I think that I think that there will definitely be chapters from Lorena's perspective still because I gave a very broad, you know, sort of gesture to the fact that she is doing these heinous things, but we don't have any idea exactly why she's doing these things. Mm-hmm. Just that she is. Okay. That when she's, you know, choreographing this movement of her fire more well that her eyes are dark and possessed and the black orb is floating around her. So there's there's still plenty that could be told from Lorena's point of view. So I like the idea of coffee as currency. 
what special treat, whether it be a food, beverage, or something, would be your idea of currency in the apocalypse? Well, it's already hard enough to find the kind of Haribos that I like in the grocery stores here. (laughs) So I assume in the future, if you could give me any Haribos, I would be pleased. Okay. But I have a Haribo hierarchy of the ones that I like from best to worst. And so, like, if you gave me the, like, lemon cola foxes, Mm -hmm. I would be your indentured servant. Okay. (laughs) That's how we get information from you. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I imagine that would be a really interesting interaction at a bar in the future. So I hope that actually happens. (laughs) Yeah. Start hoarding those away to lord over me in the future when you want want, uh, me to do things in the the dystopia. So we talked the last podcast about the kind of go-to elements of writing that you and I include into our stories. And I think you pulled an Ethan in that you've introduced a cool potential monster, or would you call it a normal oversized ferocious fauna? Oversized ferocious fauna. Okay. It's not a monster. It's like, it's just like, I, I sort of imagined the Ursua as similar to A polar bear and a seal that has been mixed. Ooh. And so it's a giant slick northern bear is what what I call them. And they live half in and out of the water. But then the alpha of the the group, the Ursua king, is like, you know, over 30 feet tall, which I had to put in meters because you decided meters was the unit of measurement. I should have said that she was six times the height of the crimson woman. I wish I hadn't put meters in because it's really confusing. If for me. I was, man, if I was, <laughs> that's the one thing we should have really talked about early on. This is, this is where like, and we talked earlier too about how funny we can make this. Yeah. Because I, I struggle about whether or not I should put in jokes into this. If I should have described the Ursula King as being six crimson women's, I did sort of, uh, I said it was six times. Finnegan's height. Yeah. But that was to give context to our American readers who have no idea that 10 meters is actually quite tall. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's massive. Yeah, that was the, you know, uh, that was a misstep. That that was something that we should have <laughs> kind of had a charter about, you know, back in what, 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 I mean, I guess at some point somebody could come up, you know, and the world could announce that, oh, we're going to actually switch from meters to feet. Everybody, no worries. Keep on mm-hmm. going with what you're doing. <laughs> That's going to be the straw that breaks this world's back. <laughs> They're going to be like, no, Imperial, what is this? We have no context for what that means even. It's a fantasy world. (laughs) That kind of leads me to my next question is, you know, what constitutes a monster versus just a big ferocious animal? Because I've always struggled with this because anything that could eat me in my mind, I kind of feel like is a monster. But that's not fair, is it? I guess not. I mean, would you call like a brown bear a monster? I, I would. You would? Yeah, that scares me. Yeah, I, I just see them as a potential friend Yeah, <laughs> that then will most likely kill and eat me. But still, I, I like to try to remain positive. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know what the distinction is. I mean, I suppose that like, I have to imagine that when I think of a monster, I think of something that is supernatural, where like, you would, you would be scared if you saw an Ursula King. And you would run away, but you would know what it is and why it's there. Mm -hmm. And a monster, you would be scared and run away, but you would have no idea what that thing is or how it got there. Okay. Yeah, that's actually a pretty good distinction. I like that. But Ursula, the the word, did that come from the Spanish conquistador Pedro de Ursula or the uh, NFL linebacker uh, John Ursula? 
Wow. You Okay, so who does John Ursua play for? The Seattle Seahawks. The Seattle Seahawks, yeah. which is my team. However, Ursua is part of the Latin name for bear. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, that touche. Touche. So I got to throw in a deep cut yeah. for my beloved hometown football team. <laughs> And hopefully John Ursula gets gets some more some more reps this season because we need a wide receiver three. Uh, but yeah, that was a dual meaning that meant something to me and likely not to anyone else. Yeah, I, I think it's funny that I those were the two things that came up, <laughs> not the easy one. Okay, well Jeff, we're at that point of the show where we get to send you to the corner of self doubt. Are you ready? No, I don't think I'm going this week, Ethan. What? I'm not going to stand in the corner. Why? I feel pretty confident about my work. It was really good, actually. I, I was, yeah, I was curious. I liked this what I a, did. Yeah. That theme song was a banger, it if was. I do say so myself. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I felt good about how it turned out. So I think I think we should do a new segment this week. A new segment? Yeah, I know. It's exciting. We've been trying our best on Twitter. Yes, yes. That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. But Twitter doesn't really care for our efforts. No. So we're going to do a little... We're going to do a little segment about about twitter all the great tweets that no one liked yes welcome to our new segment all our great tweets that no one liked we've been we you know to be fair people who are successful on twitter seem to be on it 24 7 yep and neither you or i have any desire for that to be our lives no we were talking about escapes places we would want to live Twitter's not a place. Twitter I want is to not live. a place I want. Oh my gosh, that's a no. horrible place. But we're trying. We're at least showing up. Yeah. We're, we're trying. Yeah. We're, we're trying to make friends. We're interacting. There are some people who you know post some great stuff that we're that we're following, and we interact with them. You've tried interacting more than I have, or at least you've you've posted more than I have. Mm-hmm. How do you, and how do you feel about it? Well, I personally thought I had some real bangers. You know, I really thought I had some tweets that were going to set the internet on fire. I high-fived myself and, uh, you know, even had my wife tell me how great they were. And <laughs> we didn't get much at all. Um, it's confusing. I think there's a, there's a you know, period of time that you need to tweet and a frequency and whatnot. But, you know, we, we came up with a list of, of kind of our strategy in terms of how do we interact. Yeah, so strategy one was write a banger. Write a banger. That everybody's going to love. And... I developed this kind of kind of theme that I thought, well, wouldn't it be funny if two guys that haven't had anything officially published yet began to give tips to people about how to write? So I had this one, which I really, really enjoyed. It was a fantasy writing tip. Dragons are often overused in fantasy, but if you insist on using them, at least give them fingerless gloves and contemporary haircuts. I thought it was great. Oh, yeah. We got three likes on That's that. That's a good one. Three likes, which, to be fair, is like... A high point for us. So it, yeah. <laughs> it got a, but you know, three likes on Twitter is not a lot. It's like a negative like on Facebook, isn't it? If that, yeah. maybe, <laughs> if there's an equivalency there. Yeah. Yeah. You had a lot of good fantasy writing tips, yeah. but they haven't quite, they haven't quite caught on yet. No. I think one of the main ways that they tell you to try to make it on Twitter is to ask questions. Yes. Uh, you want to get people interacting. So, What's a question that you asked? So I asked this question, which, again, um, sticking with our demographic or, you know, our, our focus demographic of the TTRPG gang is, okay, how would I include myself as a relatively, you know, new to the uh, uh, genre type individual? Um, so I wrote this one. Would people be frustrated if I injected Tom Clancy characters into D&D campaigns? 
I'm a sucker for middle-aged men in starch suits endlessly searching for explosives. We didn't get anything on that at all. No, you got no likes and no and no comments. I, and I kind of ho- felt like maybe I struck a nerve because I think that, well, I, I don't think I did. I think people just completely ignored it. But in my mind, the reason they didn't like it was because it struck a nerve because you know it's a very tight knit community, and I don't I didn't want to give off the impression that I was making fun of anybody because I definitely wasn't. And I do ask Jeff about the background and all this kind of stuff on D and D. But I just really, really thought it would it was funny to have an archer and a mage and then just some FBI analyst that's just constantly looking around nervously because he <laughs> thinks something is about to explode. Um, I don't know. Maybe we can include that later on. I mean, we know what happened. Well, you and I know what is happening in the story. You're putting in men in suits in there's, our story. There's a couple men in suits in there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a weird. You, you, like the, you like the man in suit doing government espionage stuff. I kind of do. That's a weird thing. I, I watched way too many of those movies when I was younger. But I think the other thing we tried to do was also retweet things that we thought were good and funny. And so you had a couple. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, a lot of uh, success can come from being sort of a aggregate for other people's good ideas. Mm-hmm. And we found this, like I posted the same cute video of a dog running with an RPG score behind it <laughs> on Twitter and on Instagram. Yeah. And it got like 3000 views and... 70 likes on instagram and 12 views on twitter so uh, twitter we're bad at it yeah but we uh, we retweeted this tweet that i thought was you know especially pertinent to what we're doing which was from angry robot books and they seem to do good stuff this tweet got 30.2 thousand likes and 11.7 thousand retweets they're the original tweet yeah it was count dracula was 412 when he moved to england in search of new blood Sauron was 54,000 years old when he forged the One Ring. Cthulhu has seen galaxies flare into life and fade into darkness before he put madness in the minds of men. It's never too late to follow your dreams. <laughs> and it's a, it's a great tweet. And I retweeted it with uh, that feeling when two guys in their late 30s start a fantasy writing podcast. <laughs> Thinking that, you know, there are going to be some other... We got a lot of aspiring writers and stuff yeah. that, that, were, uh, that are following us and we're following them crickets yeah no maybe it was too close to home maybe they were older than i don't know that yeah. age i have no idea but yeah no they're all tweens they're all, yeah <laughs> maybe the, the the prospect of being middle-aged creeped them out and so yeah, now they'll never talk it. to us <laughs> okay well, well we'll keep working on our twitter strategy and maybe we'll come we'll come back and we'll see we'll see if uh anyone starts liking our great tweets maybe all it maybe it's one of those things where all we have to do is call attention to it and then everybody will feel bad yeah and they'll start liking our tweets <laughs> I'm I'm not above tweet shaming. Um, I don't think I am anymore at this point. No. <laughs> okay, moving forward, we've got some new roles. Ooh. This one is from our our new little Twitter friend, Turd Curdler. He gave us some good ideas. <laughs> it's magic finger traps, but for the brain or heart. That's really good. Yeah, and that that one actually wasn't technically a fate index submission. I think he responded to one of the questions that you that you posted with this. Oh. And then just de facto if you put it on our Twitter page, it's a fate index it's a fate. <laughs> suggestion because we don't have so many to work with. Yeah. <laughs> But I liked that. I really liked this idea of like there being this sort some character getting stuck in a situation where no matter how hard they resist, 
they're just sucked in even harder yeah. into some sort of trap. Yeah, that is cool. So yeah, great idea. Thank you, Turd Curdler. <laughs> and the other one is from Will Jamius, also on Twitter. Super intelligent, magical infant. Yes. Yes, which is cool. It is I, cool. I don't want um, more children in the story, yeah. necessarily, but an infant that is like fully formed and powerful yeah. doesn't count. No. And, 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 and did they say, did we determine if it's a, a human infant or it could be an infant of anything? Infant of anything. It just says super intelligent, magical infant. Ooh, cool. So yeah, it gives us, it, it opens some ideas up. Yeah. For sure. So thank you very much to everybody who submitted. Keep them coming. Keep please. them coming. Yes. Yeah. We love it. We love seeing it. Yep. Ethan's chapter is next. Mm-hmm. Chapter six. Mm-hmm. We hope wow. you like, yeah, six whole chapters. That's pretty good. Yeah. We, we like where it's going. Uh, we hope you like listening to it. If you do, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like it, please tell your friends. Your friends might like it too. Yeah. We like you. Yes. Thanks for listening, everybody. All right. Bye-bye.